a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I probably don't tell you this enough, but thank you for being a part of my audience. You know, I never know who's listening. I never know if that person is uh, glad, frustrated, angry, or, you know, just uh, just curious. How, how crazy is this guy? But whatever reason you, you tuned in, I'm very thankful that you gave it a chance. And uh, if, you, if you're new to the show, can I just explain briefly? My job here is I speak the truth as best I understand it, not because I've cornered the market on it, but uh, because I believe it matters. I think we live in a time where deception is almost the rule rather than the exception. And it's hard to know, you know, what's fact, what's fiction, what's true, what isn't. So I'm not here so much to supply you with, yes, I am the only source of truth, so much as to convince you that you have the power, in fact, you have a duty to be a clear and independent thinker. And hopefully I can give you some tools to work with that uh, can help. That means you don't have to agree with anything that I share with you. I just offer these as food for thought. And you'll notice I tend to stay away from politics as much as possible just because politics uh, really is, is not so much about truth. It's about winning. It's about power. And so the truth is kind of a secondary concern when it comes to political considerations. We don't, uh, we don't really care so much as, did our guy win or not? Boy, there's a whole tangent I could go down on that. But for, for the time being, welcome to the show. Let's jump right in. It's really easy, especially right now with screens in every place of our lives, to live in a state of perpetual distraction. I see the strongest with my kids, and, and I kind of grieve about it. You know, we've, we've lost a generation to screens. And I'm not a Luddite thinking, well, we ought to go back to living in caves and, you know, washing our clothes down on a rock by the river. I don't, I don't think we're, we're, we need to abandon technology, but clearly there's an aspect of technology that has overtaken particularly our young people. And it's really sad. You go out in public. You know what? I see this particularly at, at restaurants. I even see it, you know, at church. And uh, people... Not just the kids, but generally people are just mm, glued to their phone if, if they don't have something, if someone's not engaging them right at that moment. And it makes me wonder, what are we missing? What are we not seeing that, uh, that we should be seeing? Well, to answer that question in part, I've got a great essay here from Barry Brownstein. What else are we missing? And he's, he's specifically talking about how the miracles of human cooperation often go unnoticed. Barry Brownstein says, sometimes we do something foolish and it works out. For instance, he says, when our twins were a few months old, we took them to a North Country Chamber Players concert. For 45 years, the North Country Chamber Players have been in summer residence in New Hampshire's White Mountains. The founders, musicians from the internationally famous Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, have grown old together. They've been joined by new generations of musicians, some from the innovative of Far Cry Chamber Orchestra. He says, a highlight of our summers has been hearing them play. Many summers ago, with our twins in their baby car seats, we checked in at the ticket desk. 
The concert was held in a ski lodge, and we sat in the very back, planning a hasty exit at the first whimper. But he says there were no whimpers, and the babies were not sleeping. At At intermission, a guest violinist from the Tokyo String Quartet headed straight for us. Were we about to get scolded? Hardly. He says the violinist graciously told us that our daughter was the most attentive member of the audience. He said her eyes tracked and never left the players. Now, Barry Brownstein says, over the decades, I've learned from my children about the power of attention and presence, qualities that many of us seem to lack as adults. He says, in 2007, in an experiment documented by the Washington Post, one of the great violinists of our time, Joshua Bell, wearing jeans, a t-shirt, and a baseball cap, stood at the entrance of L'Enfant Plaza subway stop in Washington, D.C., playing a Stradivarius violin worth three and a half million dollars. Among the music Bell played was the Chaconne from Johann Sebastian Bach's uh, Partita No. 2 in D minor, which is, without exaggeration, among the most sublime and moving music ever written. That piece was followed by Schubert's achingly beautiful Ave Maria. So what's extraordinary about this story is that of the 1,097 people who walked by during Bell's 43-minute performance, only seven stopped to listen. And that was six minutes into his performance until the first person did. In fact, if you watch the video of his performance, you can see that most people seem not to notice that he was there. And he links to the video, which you can check out because I've linked to it in my show notes today. After each piece, Bell was ignored. The music stops. The same people who hadn't noticed him playing don't notice that he's finished. There's no applause, no acknowledgement. Do you see the point that Barry Brownstein is making here? Our culture's full of cliches about being more alive and more present. Live life to the fullest. Wake up and smell the roses. Yet we often remain unaware, living proof that exhortations rarely change behavior. So what then would change our behavior? What would bring our attention to the present? Well, he says all that's required is to become aware of what's getting in our way. So consider the D.C. subway commuters as they woke in the morning on the day of Bell's performance. Now, like us, they probably did not notice how quickly their mind activity absorbed their attention. They probably didn't see themselves instantly checking into their physical and psychological ailments. Back pain, still there. Afternoon meeting to worry about, still there. Problematic financial situation, still there. Good. All systems go. In other words, and for all of us, our problems are bound up with our self-concept. In fact, before getting out of bed, anxiety about the day may begin to mount. Our mind then goes into action, scans the world, constructs imaginary scenarios, and comes up with external causes that relieve us of responsibility. Barry says if the commuters were like most of us, they were too distracted by their mind's activity to notice the extraordinary music they were about to encounter. If their smartwatch measured presence, they would be getting a red alert. And he shares a poem here from Mary Oliver, I Go Down to the Shore. I go down to the shore in the morning, and depending on the hour, the waves are rolling in or moving out. And I say, oh, I am miserable. What shall, what should I do? And the sea says in its lovely voice, excuse me, I have work to do. Barry Brownstein says, Washington Post reporter Gene Weingarten, who covered this Bell story, asked a powerful question. If we can't take the time out of our lives to stay a moment and listen to one of the best musicians on earth play some of the best music ever written, if the surge of modern life so overpowers us that we are deaf and blind to something like that, then what else are we missing? 
I know, that one got me too. What else are we missing? Barry says can be answered in many ways. Not only do we notice the miracles of human do we notice the miracles of human cooperation that make our daily life possible? Let me try that again. Not often do we notice those miracles. Rarely do we wonder how things work. And until our expectations are not met, we take for granted the supply chain that keeps our stores stocked and the work of individuals worldwide whose labor goes into the products we consume. We complain and return to complacency as soon as the power comes back on or our favorite product is back in stock. Ouch. Yeah, he scored directly with that one. We are missing gratitude for how little we give relative to how much we give back. By ourselves, we would quickly perish. Relying on our own understanding, we can produce little. Even a tribe of like-minded individuals on their own renders a primitive existence. Barry Brownstein says we are missing awe and wonder for what F.A. Hayek called the extended order of human cooperation. Presence calls forth wonder and creativity, moral courage, goodness, peace, and happiness flow through us. I don't think I ever thought of it quite in that way. He concludes by writing, When we are not present, we are caught up in mind-constructed narratives threaded with misery. What we fail to appreciate and cherish can soon be lost. He says, When humanity stops cooperating, misery will be real and not merely mind-constructed. Now, I don't know about you. I didn't set out here today, I'm going to make sure that uh, you carry this with you for the rest of your day, but... Reading that essay definitely has given me a little adjustment in my state of mind and, and a resolve. I want to be a little more present today. I want to be a little more focused on what matters. Now, sometimes that means we have to step back and kind of take the long term, you know, the, 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 the view of, of, of life of, okay, what's going to matter to me more in 20 years? The thing I'm worrying about as I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning or the fact that my daughter is competing and showing her steer today for 4-H. By the way, she went to bed last night about 11 and was up at 4 this morning getting ready. In fact, she's out the door by 5 o'clock in the morning to get her steer ready to show. That's a big sacrifice on top of months and months of work to get that steer ready. Do you think my time would be better spent arguing with strangers on the internet today or being there for her and supporting her in her effort? I know how I want to answer that question. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I had mentioned my show notes in the last segment, and I'm just going to throw this out there. If you want to check out the show notes, you will find links to my articles, links to my guests. You can go to thebrianhydeshow.com. It's that simple. Click on the show notes. By the way, down at the bottom of the page, you'll find a subscribe button. Share your email address with me, and I'll send you a copy of my notes each day that I do the show. Found a very interesting article. This was uh, this was fun only because anybody who's been on a snipe hunt can appreciate uh, understanding the difference between what's real and what isn't. It's been a long time since I've thought about being up there at Camp Bradley on a snipe hunt out in the dark woods. Here's snipe. Here's snipe. Oh boy, uh, to live that one down. 
Well, this is from the Brownstone Institute. Toby Rogers has written an article called Snipe Hunts All the Way Down. He says, as a kid, I was a star soccer player. I averaged over a goal a game and made the all-star team every year. Socializing was easy because when you're the top scorer on the team, everyone wants to be your friend. In fifth grade, a group of parents in the well-to-do neighboring city of Arcadia announced they were conducting tryouts for an elite traveling youth soccer team that would soon tour China. I tried out and cried tears of joy when I got the call that I was selected. We had early morning practices throughout the summer. I was sure that we were on the precipice of greatness. My parents soon grew dubious. A scouting trip by the coaches, by the coach rather, revealed cities so polluted one couldn't see to the next block. The fields we were, where we were supposed to play had no grass, and the players wore laborers' filtered dust masks during the games. There was never a fundraising plan, no sponsors, no budget. It was just a harebrained idea that some parents had cooked up that had no possibility of becoming a reality, and if it had become a reality, it would have been a disaster. Months of practice turned into a year with no trip to China in sight. So the next summer, to stem the rising discontent, the coaches invited the team to spend a a week together at Yosemite National Park. It was billed as a bonding exercise that would bring the team close together. In the Winnebago on the way up to Yosemite, a couple of teenage boys, older children of the coaches, started discussing in very authoritative voices how Yosemite was a great spot for hunting the western tree snipe. They discussed the colors and types, the food they preferred, and the best locations for finding them. As best I could tell, the western tree snipe was a type of lizard, but then, confusingly, there were some furtive whispers that snipes do not exist, followed by loud denunciations of the doubters. He says, nothing about the situation was appealing to me. I found the teenage boys creepy. I did not particularly want to hunt lizards at night. And what was all this muttering about them not being real? So the first night while the others went off to hunt snipes, I crawled into my sleeping bag and tried to sleep. So... I hate to be a spoiler here, but he says, for those of you who are new to snipe hunting, it's a youthful practical joke that goes back to the 1840s. There is no snipe. It's just a way to haze the innocent and uninformed. He says, I get that practical jokes could teach one to question authority, but in the case of snipe hunting and other forms of hazing, the victimized soon take their place in the social hierarchy as victimizers. I knew none of this at the time. Several hours later, the boys returned elated. They had trampled through protected grasslands and maybe caught snipes or maybe they didn't. But it was all somehow fantastic. And in the process of not participating in this ritual, he says, I was somehow diminished. Over the course of the week, friendships faded. Scoring goals was no longer the social currency. What mattered was fitting into the group culture. Now, he says, my relationship with the team never recovered from that trip. In junior high, I went back to playing AYSO. The China team continued to play club soccer for another year. The China trip never happened. Next, he says, In high school, I wanted to be great at soccer and great at academics, but many of the best athletes and smartest smartest students, along with a lot of other kids, wanted to get drunk and experiment with drugs as much as possible. And he says, I didn't get it. Why would I intentionally do something that impairs performance? But for four years, the conversation at lunchtime every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday was about reliving what happened at the party last weekend, and the conversation on Thursday and Friday was about anticipating what was to come at the party that weekend. He says, it all just seemed so pointless to me. In college, the athletics and academics were significantly better, but the hegemonic culture still revolved around drinking to excess. I didn't understand people who wanted to join fraternities and their culture of hazing. It just seemed that it was a darker form of snipe hunting, but some people instinctively gravitated toward that. 
As an adult, he says, I, w- I could not wait to enter the workforce where I figured, finally, people would take things seriously. He says, I worked for heaps of nonprofits, but discovered not revolutionaries, but a lot of people who looked the part, who wanted to do as little work as possible, even if that meant routinely lying about everything. Then he says, I got really sick, worked with my dad on church politics for over a decade, and returned to school to get more degrees, all while dealing with chronic pain. Imagine my disappointment then when I discovered that huge swaths of the social sciences are just snipe hunts. Furthermore, he says, my own research showed that huge sections of the economy, the pediatric vaccine schedule, the search for the gene for autism, and vaccinology in general, are massive multi-billion dollar snipe hunts that maim and kill children. Entire fields of study are built around elaborate frauds and people gleefully participate, even though there's no beneficial purpose in the end. Now, others have written about cultures built around artificiality. Perhaps the best is Simacrola, Simulacra, rather, and Simulation by French sociologist Jean Baudrillard. He argues that we live in a culture where the artificial mimics He's talking things like breast implants, simulated wood, video games, are preferred over the real objects they are imitating. Actual women's bodies, real wood, actual adventures. But the question remains, why? Why pursue pursue stupid crap, snipe hunts, escapism through drugs and alcohol, temporary adrenaline hits, mediocrity, artificiality, instead of the good stuff, dedicating one's life to greatness in all things? Now listen to his answer. He says, I think it's because most of us do not know why we are here. With the breakdown of the old social order, family, community, connection to the earth, and humility and reverence for the divine, we are left naked and alone on this rock hurtling through space. The fake, the simulated, and the ridiculous become welcome distractions from existential doubts. The fake becomes desirable because we fear that underneath it, underneath it all, everything is meaningless. The fake is thus true in this view because everything is artifice. Like the ancients in the desert, modern people build countless golden calves to give themselves purpose and a sense of control over the chaos of life. He says, as I've written before, what's striking about the COVID era is the artificiality of it all. The FDA and CDC gather experts... For highly choreographed meetings, lightly review rigged data from Pfizer and Moderna that still show these vaccines kill more people than they save. And then the FDA and CDC authorize them anyway. They're not even trying to hide the preposterousness anymore. The FDA, CDC, NIH, White House, and mainstream society seem to celebrate the snipe huntiness of it all. They revel in the murderous bacchanalia because, as Matthias Desmet points out, Participating in Ridiculous reveals that one is part of the club, part of the inside group, bonded together through shared ritual. We're still animals that feel safer in the group, even if that group is participating in fascism. Snipe hunts, fraternity hazing, cultures built around addiction and self-harm, academic pretensions and junk science projects, products rather, including vaccines, are a wink and a nod that everything is a lie, but we proceed anyway because that's just the way things work around here. Obviously, these examples are just the tip of the iceberg as far as the artificiality of modern life. Much of allopathic medicine is expensive nonsense. Our food is fake. Our wars are just deadly profit machines for the ruling class. He says, I'm sure you can think of additional examples. It just blows my mind that even in adulthood, especially in adulthood, one is required to participate in absurdities in order to gain access 
to polite society. If one really wants to get ahead, it's essential to believe in and promote these absurdities. That's harsh, but true. He says the revolution we seek then is about a turn away from the artificial and the ridiculous toward the real. That would seem to be the most natural and rewarding of all. But the human condition and flaws in human nature are such that we're always fighting a battle against the temptations of the artificial and idolatrous. He says together we must build an entire culture and economy based on cherishing the good, the true, and the beautiful in everyday life. Again, this is Toby Rogers. I've got a link to his article in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors, including ClimbingUpward.com. By the way, Dr. John Pulver will be joining me tomorrow on the program. Also, TMCPNation.com, that's the modern conservative podcast, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. All right, let's, uh, I'm, I'm, you ready for something a little heavier? This is one, this one's a little bit scary to me just because, I don't know, I always, I've always kind of had a little bit of a fear about money. I went through a period of time when I was about 11, when my dad was out of work, for I think about five years. I'm pretty sure it was a good five years before he had steady employment. And it was it was really tough. And I've kind of carried that with me. That's one of those emotional scars of, oh, will we have enough money? And, uh, you know, I can only think of a few times in my life where it's like, okay, I'm seeing my bank account comfortably grow a little bit each month, meeting my obligations. I'm, you know, out of debt as much as possible. Whew, man, those are good times. But right now, that's not one of those times. I'm feeling the pinch. And, and I assume a lot of other people are too when it comes to, you know, what's happening in terms of uh, inflation. I, I know there's, there's talk right now that, well, you know, inflation actually has subsided. Yes, Bidenomics has conquered inflation. Well, I sure don't feel that way. Every time I go to the gas station, every time I go to the supermarket, I'm like, woof, it's sticker shock. By the way, gas jumped, I think, another 10 cents a gallon just last night. Not fun. Well, Brandon Smith, writing for alt-market.us, says, he just boldly comes right on and says, nothing is over. Inflation is about to come back with a vengeance. He says, perhaps one of the most bizarre recent developments in economic news has been the attempt by establishment media and the White House to declare U.S. inflation defeated, despite all facts to the contrary. Now, keep in mind, when these people talk about inflation, they're only talking about the most recent CPI, which is supposed to be the measure of current inflation growth, not a measure of inflation already accumulated. But the CPI is easily manipulated, and focus on that index alone is a tactic for misleading the public on the true economic danger. Now, Brandon Smith says the way current U.S. inflation is presented might seem like a fiscal miracle. How did America cut CPI so quickly? while the rest of the world, including Europe, is still dealing with continuing distress. Is Bidenomics really an economic powerhouse? No, he says, it's definitely not. I've addressed this issue in previous articles, but I'll dig into inflation specifically because I believe a new, it renewed uh, inflationary run is about to spark off in the near term, and I suspect the public is being misinformed to keep them unprepared. 
So first, let's be clear. There are four types of inflation, creeping, walking, galloping, and hyperinflation. Now, we should also distinguish between monetary inflation and price inflation because they're not always directly related. Usually they are, but events outside of money printing can also cause prices to go up. If we calculate CPI according to the same methods used during the stagflationary crisis of the 1980s, real inflation has been in double digits for the past couple of years. This constitutes galloping inflation, a very dangerous condition that can lead to a depression event. And there are multiple triggers for this inflation spike. The primary cause was tens of trillions of dollars in monetary stimulus created by the Federal Reserve the majority of which took place on the watch of Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Now, there have been multiple GOP Republicans that have supported these measures, but the majority of dollar devaluation is directly related to Democrat policies. This epic too-big-to-fail stimulus created an avalanche effect in which economic weakness accumulated like sheets of ice on a mountainside. The final straw was the COVID lockdowns and the $8 trillion plus in stimulus packages pumped directly into the system. Then it all came crashing down. So to give you a sense of how bad the situation is, he says we can take a look at the Fed's M2 money supply. They stopped reporting the more complete M3 money supply right before the crash of 2008. Now, according to the M2, the amount of dollars in circulation jumped around 40% in the span of only two years. Now, Brandon Smith says that is an epic amount of money creation. And he says, I would argue that the economy hasn't processed all of it yet. There have been too many dollars chasing too few goods and services. Thus, prices rise dramatically with the cost of necessities increasing by 25 to 50 percent. Think about that for a moment. It now costs us 25 to 50 percent more per year to live than it did before 2020. And it's not over by a long shot. Household costs are still climbing, and since inflation is cumulative, we will likely never be rid of the increases that are already in place. But if that's reality, why is CPI going down? Well, he says the main reason is the central bank pumping up interest rates. The more expensive debt becomes, the more the economy slows down. That said, the Fed has remained hawkish for a reason. They know that inflation is not going away. They need help if they're going to convince the public that inflation is no longer a problem. Enter Biden's scheme of dumping America's strategic oil reserves on the market as a means to artificially bring down CPI. Energy prices affect almost all other aspects of the CPI index. And when energy costs fall, this makes it seem like inflation is being tamed. The problem is it's a short-term fraud. Biden has run out of reserves to dilute the market, and the cost of refilling them is going to be exponentially higher. This is why you now see gas prices rising again, and they probably will keep rising through the rest of the year. On top of this, there are also geopolitical factors to consider. The White House has earmarked over $100 billion in aid to Ukraine. A proxy war is one good way to circulate fiat dollars overseas as a means to reduce monetary inflation at home. But it's not going to be enough unless the war expands considerably. Then there's the problem of export disruptions. For example... Russia is now officially and aggressively shutting down Ukraine's wheat and grain exports, which is going to cause another price spike in wheat and all foods that use wheat. India just shut down major exports of rice to protect their domestic supply, meaning rice is going to rocket in price. 
And there's an overall trend of foreign creditors quietly dumping the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency. All those dollars will eventually make their way back to the U.S., meaning an even larger money supply circulating domestically with higher inflation as a result. Like I said, this, this is not good news, but we still need to face it. Now, Brandon says the Fed doesn't necessarily have to keep printing for inflation to persist. They just had to set the chain reaction in motion. The recent Fitch downgrade of the U.S. credit rating is not going to help matters as it encourages foreign investors to dump the dollar in treasuries even faster. Now, to be sure, there's still the matter of the battle between deflationary factors versus inflationary factors. In October, the last vestiges of COVID stimulus measures will finally die, including the moratorium on student loan debt payments. That's trillions of dollars of loans pulling in billions in payments each year. Not only that, but when those loans were put on hold, millions of people magically had their credit ratings rise, which means they had access to higher credit card limits and a vast pool of debt. Now that's all going away too. No more living off Visa and MasterCard means U.S. retail is about to take a considerable hit along with the jobs market. Then there's the Fed's interest rate hike, which hikes rather, which were about as high as they were right before the crash of 2008. The same hikes that helped cause the spring banking crisis, which also is not over. So the U.S. will be paying record interest on the national debt, consumers will be using far less credit, and banks will be spending, or lending rather, less and less money. Brandon Smith says, so yes, there will be competing forces pulling the economy in two different directions, inflation and deflation. However, he says, I would argue that the inflation is not done with us yet and that the Fed will have to hike a few more times to suppress it in the short term. In the long term, the viability of the U.S. dollar is the issue, but that's a discussion for another article. Now, I don't share this article from Brandon Smith with you in the hopes that, boy, that ought to get your blood pumping, right? Huh? Can you hear your pulse in your ears or do you feel that sick feeling in your stomach? I'll admit it gives me a measure of anxiety as I can contemplate. Whew, I already know people who are treading deep water. Some days I feel like, okay, why? Uh, no, okay, I can't quite touch bottom here. And I feel like I'm getting out of my own depth. But I think we have a, a pretty major problem ahead of us. I'm not so interested in fixing blame, and I'm not trying to, you know, again, promote any kind of anger or fear. But if you knew such a problem was coming, if you knew that things were about to tighten up considerably, what are the steps that you would reasonably take to make sure that you were covered, to make sure that you and your family or those who are closest to you had the necessities that they needed? I feel like a little bit of a hypocrite saying this one because, you know, once, once we were very close to being completely out of debt, I'm not there right now. And while I'm not buried in debt, uh, I'm thinking getting out of debt is probably one of the best moves a person could make. I would say making sure that you have the essential things that you need on hand. I've always kind of liked the idea of uh, basically I have a little grocery store in my basement, meaning I have, you know, food supplies. I have soap, cooking oil, toothpaste, mouthwash, Band-Aids. The stuff that we use on a regular basis. Yes, toilet paper. <laughs> you know, no sense in fighting people in Walmart for that stuff. But if you're going to get stocked up, it's probably not going to be any cheaper than it is right now. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm really sorry if, uh, if I've given you uh, ulcers <laughs> with that last segment. I do think Brandon Smith is a great resource, though, as far as uh, he's willing to tell the truth straight up and uh, not try to sugarcoat it or spin it for some political advantage. And, and no, he's not somebody who's out there just, you know, writing things. Oh, this ought to scare people. Watch him. Watch him freak out when they read this. I think he's offering a very timely warning. And I would say for those who have ears to hear, maybe pay attention. There's a lot that we can do, even if there's a lot of things that are out of our immediate control as well. Focus on those things that you can take care of. You know, get right with God. Strengthen your family relationships for those things that you can't really control. Because I think uh, those, those are probably the two most likely places of refuge from whatever storms may be coming. All right, that said, you know, it's easy to dismiss the deep state as just cons- conspiracy fodder. But that's usually because people aren't that well informed about it, all right? They don't know much. Well, they hear it. And, oh, yeah, that sounds like one of those conspiracy theories, you tinfoil hat wearing kook. Well, Paul Rosenberg actually has a marvelous primer on the deep state that I think gives some genuine perspective on what it is as well as what it isn't. He says, I recently had some discussions with a friend on the deep state in America, and since this topic has been been making the rounds, I think a primer may be helpful. I spent time some years ago among these people commuting on their roads and trains, sleeping in their leafy suburbs, and strolling the very fine streets of the capital. I think I can make a fair enough job of this. He says, the first thing to know about the deep state is that it is not a thing, but rather like a big stew with all sorts of pieces floating around in it. The deep state is not a well-oiled machine in which each member plays his or her role as instructed. And deep state members are very commonly hers these days, for what that's worth. The thing to remember is that the deep state is not really an evil cabal. The problem is that the deep state with the deep state is not that it's directly evil, it's rather that it provides a frictionless environment for sociopaths. Ooh. That, uh, that certainly rings true. He says the deep state is, in fact, composed of our relatives. I doubt that many people in the United States are more than three degrees of separation from a member of the deep state, and likely more than one. After all, when we discuss the deep state, we're talking about a large number of people. A high percentage of deep state people feel righteous about what they do. Many of them enjoy the feeling of being the smart class, keeping the country on track in spite of itself. To grasp this, he says you can refer to a Time magazine article from February 24th of 2021. What you'll see is deep state associates telling the world that they righteously saved America from itself. That's the attitude. All sorts of sociopaths and near sociopaths swim through the deep state stew, courting congressmen, staffs, and department heads, seducing them, bribing them, blackmailing them, and so on. A political capital, after all, is where the money of a hundred million people can be skimmed at once. And where the money is, there will be thieves gathered. But a mid-level deep state clerk may not be directly involved in any of this. Now, complicated stews like the deep state don't just coalesce and act in a unified way. In fact, they're unlikely to act in a unified way unless some outside force aligns them. 
and that requires a good deal of voltage. In the old days, with the deep state being much smaller, a strong personality could get large sections of them to act coherently. For example, a man named Robert Blakey, who worked at the U.S. Attorney General's office under Bobby Kennedy, had this to say, quote, You can't know how inefficient and corrupt and inept the government is unless it's held together by the force of somebody's personality. Robert Kennedy had that and did that. End quote. And Paul Rosenberg says, I'm not sure that has happened since. Now, the other way to get the deep state to act coherently is with an object of hate, or at least a figure of overwhelming disgust. That, of course, is precisely the role played by Donald Trump. He was used as a devil figure, a designated target for outrage. Lots of people have maintained that the deep state is owned or controlled by leftists. He says, I don't think that's quite correct, although it can appear so. That appearance follows from the fact that American institutions are overwhelmingly influenced by the political left. This was made very clear by the spectacle of nearly every university, union, medical system, and sports league leaping into line behind the woke banner. So the deep state is a large set of interlocking institutions, of very large and powerful institutions, and so small entities are almost invisible to them. People within the deep state see megacorporations, media conglomerates, and powerful foundations. They don't see plumbers, farmers, and truck drivers. Michael Crichton, who was six foot ten, used to say that when he went to large meetings, he'd end up in a cluster with the other tall guys. They weren't trying to exclude everyone else, they just felt more comfortable together. The deep state and its closeness to institutions is due more to this than a corrupt plan. Productive individuals and their beliefs just don't enter the field of view. So, he says, I hope that clears things up for you. The deep state is assuredly a major problem, and particularly so for productive Americans. And yes, it will end badly in one way or another. But he says, please don't believe that the deep state is a unified machine operated by people dedicated to evil. A man who investigated the East German secret police after the Berlin Wall said, uh, Berlin Wall fell, said, if only I had met on this search a single person who was clearly evil. But they were all just weak, shaped by circumstances and self-deceiving. Yet the sum of their actions was a great evil. End quote. Now that's much closer to the true nature of the deep state. People at the myriad agencies are going along with power and enjoying a gilded or at least silvered life from it. For most of them, their sins are more of omission than commission. However harmful the deep state may be, it is peopled by our relatives. Pretty good essay, but I expect nothing less. Paul Rosenberg, I think, is is a world-class thinker. That's definitely worth considering. You know, if if you're not an enemy-driven person, maybe that's the kind of thinking you would arrive at on your own. But sometimes it's very easy to become enemy-driven, particularly when it uh, you know applies to Leviathan and standing up against Leviathan. And now Leviathan wants to be in every part of our lives. So hopefully this is some good food for thought. All right, the article of the day. I'm just going to touch on this one briefly. This was I picked this up off LewRockwell.com earlier this morning. It's Kirkpatrick Sale. Looking at this nation's mess, small is more beautiful than ever. Kirkpatrick says, this is one and only, there is one and only one conclusion. I should think everyone alive during this last few years of shutdowns and vaccinations and election chicanery and a sham and crooked presidency and a ridiculous election season and unprecedented government intrusions would come to is this. And that is the government that we have in this country 
is too incompetent, inept, corrupt, wasteful, inefficient, too centralized, undemocratic, unjust, invasive, and too unresponsive to the needs of the individual citizens and small communities because it is too big. Simple as that. He says the reason that more of us don't come to this conclusion is that we as a nation have long been fixated on the value of bigness, size, super this and colossal that, immensity, bulk, quantity, greatness, Big Macs, Whoppers, Green Giant, big box stores, king-size mattresses, global trade, mass productions, McMansions, high-rises, double-wides, and the smallest olive size is jumbo. We're not trained to see things in terms of scale, proportion, adequacy, and, and appropriateness. As a nation, we killed nearly a million of our own people to reinforce the value of oneness and largeness and to punish the idea of division and separateness. But the simple fact is that a nation of more than 300 million people covering nearly 4 million square miles from ocean to ocean and beyond cannot be governed by any system, by any agency, despotic or democratic. And certainly not by a system where 535 people are supposed to legislate for all, one for 58,000 people. And it takes 4,430,000 to administer them to them at the federal level. That's beyond human capability, even beyond angelic ability. He says the truth stares us in the face every day, but we never admit it, never enunciate it. Why, that would be a confession that the nation is a failure. The American experiment at large-scale republicanism is at an end. We've got to step back and do something very, very different. And as a nation, even one in such deep political, economic, financial, and cultural trouble, we just don't seem to be able to face that. And yet it's only by admitting that the nation is too big to work that we stand a chance of getting out of the deep mess we've created. And that's the first step toward thinking about the alternative. It's not elections, of course, for that doesn't change anything, certainly not size. It's not amendments to the Constitution, the document that inevitably got us where we are today. For that only tries to reform a system that's grown so far beyond the founders' conception. They had a nation of just under 4 million people that it bears scant relation to the original. It's not any sort of rejiggering or reorganizing or reworking or even revolution. It's devolution. It's dissolution, secession, separatism. It's making everything smaller. Now, hopefully that's a hook that gets you interested in what he has to say. When he talks about it's decentralizing. That's what he's getting at. And by the way, that starts at the individual level, so you don't have to think about this in terms of, well, I don't want my state to break away. How about you start with your own personal decentralization? This is The Brian Hyde Show.